Well, of course, as we have called attention several times, it is Mother's Day. And sometimes you wonder, or at least in my situation, you wonder, year after year after year, does the Bible really have something that you can preach to people on Mother's Day and make it fresh? Or do you just uh, sort of slip back to your sermon files and see what you preached 10 years ago that no one would remember anyway? And I have to tell you the truth, I've never been tempted to do that. I don't think I've ever done that in my life. It's been a great treasure to me, and I say this because I think it illustrates what's true for every one of us. It's been a great privilege for me through years of preaching to find that the Bible is inexhaustible. The Word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and you can go to it every day, and things you've read a million times before pop out at you because God has that for you today, and His Spirit takes that and empowers that and brings that home to your heart. And that's precious to each of us, and I can tell you it's precious to a preacher. This year, as I thought about this, God directed my attention to this story. Jesus worked his first miracle at Cana in Galilee at a marriage gathering to which his mother was invited. He and his disciples were invited. This occasion, folks, really is so important that if we use the traditional greeting to a wedding... We always call attention to the fact that Jesus sanctified marriage by the fact that he worked his first miracle at a marriage here in Cana of Galilee. So this passage is really very special to us from any number of standpoints. Today I'd like to talk to you about the passage from the standpoint of the best advice a mother could give. I believe you have listened to me long enough to know that I'm not given to ostentatious titles or titles that overpromise, or titles that are just sort of designed to reach out and promise more than they really deliver. Um, I'm sure that if we were to, I didn't do this, but I've done this type of thing before, if you were to go to the internet and search, and you would find places where you could find a compilation of what people said that really changed their life, that their mother gave them advice, or someone else gave them advice, you can find all sorts of things like this. To tell you the truth, I didn't even consider that. I just considered this. I'm not really in any fear of being contradicted because I don't think a mother could give any better advice than what Mary gave on this occasion that we find recorded in verse number 5. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Just to set the stage a little bit, I want you to know the three thoughts that I'm going to work with and try to develop out of this passage. Whenever we talk about doing God's will, sometimes it involves a struggle, doesn't it? I think I can show you that here. But regardless of the struggle, whenever we do exactly what Mary advised these servants to do, however little we understand, whenever we submit in our hearts to the will of God, it always follows that it brings to us a satisfaction and a deep joy in our hearts because it's always the best thing to do. And that's what Mary told those servants. Let's look at these thoughts today. The first of them is struggle. As I said, you know, it is really not uncommon to struggle with the will of God. That's a broad topic, and many sermons have been devoted to trying to help Christians better understand how to find the will of God. 
Sometimes that's part of the struggle. Sometimes you're at that point in life where you really want to know. Maybe you're a young person and you you really want to know what is God's will for my life and you're having trouble finding that and you're kind of thinking, well, if I really want to do God's will, shouldn't God just kind of make that clear right away, right now? And we think that way. I mean, we live in an impatient society and we've just kind of grown accustomed to right now, instant, everything. And sometimes you know God's will. Jonah did, right? He struggled for a different reason. He didn't struggle because he didn't know it. Some of us have had that struggle. We have wanted to know God's will and had to search and seek after it. And it wasn't easy always to know what God had in a certain situation or to know what God had for our lives. Other times you get people like Jonah and they very clearly know what God's will is for their life and there's still a struggle. A struggle because maybe they don't like what they found out is God's will for them to do. And they don't find that submission that I spoke of earlier uh, just immediately coming to their hearts. And other times I think we struggle with God's will because we sort of have already determined in our lives that we're going to approach the whole issue of God's will that we've already told God that we're surrendered to him. We want to do his will. And so sometimes then we find ourselves, though, in situations that we don't quite understand. And we struggle sometimes from that perspective. I think that's kind of what's going on here. So if that's your need today, I hope that, that will, this will resonate, really resonate with you. Why do I say this? Why do I think that this is kind of a situation like that for Mary, that she nevertheless didn't bat an eye, still gave the right advice, the, the submission part. Why? Well, first of all, I want you to notice how Jesus responded. Here's a situation where, as I said, Jesus' mother has been invited to the wedding. In fact, personally, I think you don't read anything too much. You don't really put too much weight on verse number five to come to the conclusion that Mary was not just invited, but that Mary probably knew these people well enough that she had been asked to have some involvement in what we would call it the catering. Uh, she had perhaps been asked to have some involvement. You notice that when we get to this verse number five, she calls the servants and gives advice, and they don't question it. They don't say, well, uh, isn't that really supposed to be for the master of the feast? Isn't that really the governor of the feast? Uh, we sort of, he's the one that's laying out this catering deal. Uh, it doesn't work that way because apparently Mary has involvement in this. And then Jesus, it says in the beginning of the story, is also called or invited. Verse number two, both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And then here comes the situation. Um, they run out of something, and they run out of something that really is expected. They run out of something that's really uh, needed. It stands out that they've run out of this. This would sort of maybe be like, think about this. Think about if we had a wedding, and uh, there's a cake there, and you come to the wedding. Most of them have a cake at the reception. You go, and you see this beautiful cake, and you know maybe you go up and get a picture of the thing before things start, but you get to that place where they're going to cut this cake, and there's this great anticipation, particularly if you've gone and looked at the cake, and you kind of see, oh, this is special. you know. Maybe, maybe you even know something about where this cake came from and who made it, and it wasn't just one of those grocery store jobs. It was really a a special cake. You know it's going to be good. We have a few people around here who can turn them out. And you're looking forward to a piece of that wedding cake and people get in line and they start cutting and they start cutting and they start cutting and they start cutting and 
keep cutting and keep cutting and keep passing out and all of a sudden there's no more cake left and there's 50 people in line. So this is kind of an embarrassing situation, right? I mean, it's kind of one of those things where you just don't want that to happen. Well, I could give you another example of one time I think the deacons were sweating BBs and one of the deacons said later about how to take care of that in the future, but we got low on communion cups. The folks that had done that for that particular service thought they had guesstimated exactly what it would be, and I think we were three, four, five short, and you're all juggling around trying to figure how you're going to accomplish this, and you just don't want to run out of certain things. Communion cups bring us a little closer to what's going on here. The beverage at the wedding, the normal beverage that would be served at a wedding like this, the wine, and she communicates that to Jesus. Well, isn't that interesting that she would tell Jesus about that? Apparently, she knew Jesus well enough. Well, maybe that's an understatement. But on the other hand, folks, that's really what we're after, isn't it? We want to get to know Jesus better. Apparently, she knew enough about him to know that she could do something like this and it would be okay with him and he would probably take the matter in hand. But it's his surprise that I think sort of catches perhaps both her and us off guard. Because when we read this in verse number 4, it says that Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. So it is very easy for us to read that and, and to perhaps assume disrespect, which we know better. So that's a good lesson right there for us. Anytime you read the Bible and you come up with some meaning or interpretation of a verse that you know just can't be it, then you know Jesus is not going to disrespect his mother, so you better start studying and doing a little bit more thinking, trying to figure out what really is going on. But it does seem a little curt. Maybe I could change the word, not disrespect, but curt. And we think about that, and maybe we're a little troubled by that. And there's some things we really need to understand, and I think it was perhaps, even when we understand those things, not so much what Mary expected because no matter what we say about this it wasn't mother he didn't say mother now we first of all look at woman and we think to ourselves well wow that's you know lots of times we use that use that when we're a little impatient you know and and, and so is that what's going on here is Jesus being impatient with his mother and come to find out no that's really not the case this is kind of a cultural thing that in the society of the New Testament, uh, that was a perfectly acceptable way to address a woman. In fact, really, if you think about this, John 19, 26, you don't have to turn. You know that story where Jesus is actually hanging on the cross. And his mother is there, and so is John. And he realizes that he's no longer going to be with her in any kind of an earthly sense, that he can take any responsibility and care for her. And so he says to her, woman, behold thy son. He's meaning John, he's not meaning her. And then he looks at John and he says, behold thy mother. So he was making arrangements for her care. Even while he was on the cross, he was thinking about her. That's a great way for us to be, always thinking about our mothers. And that's a good example there. But he says, woman, woman, behold thy son. So he's certainly not being curt there. He's certainly not being disrespectful there, no. It sort of equates maybe to something like our ma'am or madam. It's still not quite mother, is it? 
And then the next thing he says, boy, that seems a little grim too. Woman, what have I to do with thee? That really sounds impatient. That really might make us think that he was being a little brusque. Not so. Because what we have here when you study this is an idiomatic expression. What's that mean? Expression for idiots? No, it just means when you have an expression in one language that you can't just quite bring over word for word to another language. And anybody who's translating, if you've ever been preaching and had a translator you know this is true anytime you're translating and you you have a an expression you use in your language you understand it perfectly but it's not always going to be able to translate over into the other language and that's basically what's going on here um if if we were going to put all this together everything i've said so far we'd probably come out with the sense being something like this this is not really my concern is it ma'am This is not really my concern, is it, ma'am? Something like that. There's no disrespect intended, but on the other hand, he didn't address her as mother either. And so Mary, I think, was thinking to put this now to really help us understand, how does this all plug into Mary? Probably to say that she was thinking in terms of the way it was. And she had no doubt grown to, uh, grown to depend on him, especially if you think, as I believe is probably true, that Joseph had been off the scene perhaps for some time. Do you know the last time in the scripture that we have any reference to Joseph by name is that scene in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is 12 years old. Do you remember that? And they've gone to Jerusalem for the feast and Jesus stays behind and they get a couple days down the road and all of a sudden they realize he's not there. That has happened a time or two here at church. And they realize he's not amongst the company. I'm sure they thought that he probably was just going over with some of the relatives or others and they didn't think about it too much and all of a sudden they realized, where's Jesus? He's not here. So they went back to Jerusalem, no doubt a little irked with Jesus for (laughs) pulling that stunt. They found him there in the temple, remember? And Jesus said something to her that the Bible tells us that Mary took these things and studied them in her heart. He said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Really not my sermon this morning, but you know that verse is profound because that is the first time in the Bible at least that we are alerted to the fact that Jesus, this is what's called Jesus acknowledging his messiahship it's called in when you study this usually it's referred to as messianic consciousness it means that even by the age of 12 he knew who he was and what he was doing how many people at the age of 12 know who they are and what they're going to do in life not too many but jesus was aware of it and he puts that out and joseph is mentioned for the last time there and we don't see him again mentioned by name Well, if this is true, even if it didn't happen then or just shortly after then, but a bit later, who's going to bear the responsibility for the home? All right, Jesus was the oldest, right? He had brothers and sisters. He had four brothers and at least two sisters. Four brothers are given to us by name, half-brothers. The sisters, well, it just uses the word in the plural, so it's at least two. Who's got the responsibility if Joseph has been called home? Well, so obviously Mary was used to a situation in which Jesus had cared. He knew carpentry, correct? 
He knew carpentry. And undoubtedly, Jesus had, in the time before it was ready for him to go to John's baptism and actually begin his public ministry, we have very little record of that. Quiet years, years where we just assume that Jesus did what was required to do and took care of things. Mary was probably thinking in those very terms that she was used to coming to him, presenting a problem, presenting a need. But times are changing. Things are different now. Why are they different? Well, because Jesus has, in fact, gone to John's baptism. If we back up into the next chapter, and by the way, you notice that our story in verse 1 of chapter 2 is begun with the words, and the third day. So there's a progression of days When we go back into chapter number 1, we find out in verse 32 that Jesus had gone to the baptism of John. He had been baptized himself. And then when we close out the chapter and we read what took place on some of the ensuing days that lead up to this wedding at Cana in Galilee, Jesus has actually begun calling disciples. We have the story there of Peter and Andrew. We have the story there of uh, Nathaniel and Philip. And we have those stories there. And so Jesus had begun to call his disciples. He, he had begun his public ministry. In other words, what I'm saying is it's different now. Times have changed. Mary's thinking so much more so in the old terms, perhaps doesn't recognize the significance. Jesus has gone off. We're told in this chapter that John was baptizing beyond Jordan in a place called Bethabara. That's verse 28. So Jesus was gone. He attended this baptism of John. The Spirit of God descended upon him at that point. His public ministry begins. You know, all the things that follow the spirit drove him into the wilderness he was had that day of that time of temptation in the wilderness he comes back and we're told about him calling disciples and now he comes to a wedding and he's actually got some of these disciples with him and i don't know maybe mary just hasn't quite connected yet with what's really happened and moms and dads i would just say to you today you know this is difficult for all of us right because our children do grow up and things change and all of a sudden you are in those you're in the throes of those years of raising children and you think is this ever going to end and the answer is no no it really doesn't i mean they leave the home and that can be a shock but you know once the first one comes life is never the same God set it up that way. Even when they're gone, the Bible still says, honor thy father and thy mother, and there's still the privilege of giving advice. And I didn't really pl- plan to say this, and I'm not doing it to get extra credit. I guess my attitude is, is if you can't get any place, if you don't get your credit at home, you're not going to get it by one remark from the pulpit. But one of the things that I really admire in my wife is those kids can call any time. And she'll talk to them for an hour, two, whatever it is they need. And I tell you, it doesn't work that way for me. I have to, I'm not good at that. I'm just not good at that. If you want to talk to me, call me before I'm about ready to, uh, because I get to that point in the day and I just, you know, coming at me and it's just, it's hard. I just struggle with that. I really struggle. But I know the privilege that I have at this point in life is to still have a ministry with my kids. So when, and the time, with the time changes and so forth, it, it just, that seems to be when they call. 
and she'll talk to him and talk to him and talk to him and I have to confess sometimes I just go to the back room and start reading a book I'm just not ready for all that onslaught of information at the end of the day that I know is probably going to get my mind so revved up that I'll never go to sleep it is never over but Mary's thinking in those terms sometimes hard to turn loose of kids you know they get to be 18 you send them to college and I can tell you the struggles I've seen people in this church go through with that and it's difficult and then they get married and they move off somewhere and, and maybe they didn't just rent a house next door where you can see them every day and that's tough for a lot of people so these people were friends I think close friends of Mary she had some responsibility for what was going on she felt comfortable with approaching Jesus but it's a different situation right now and so he doesn't say mother he kind of addresses her in a, in a sense that will help her understand and especially this phrase that he puts at the end of that verse mine hour has not yet come it's not time I'm not ready to go public with working miracles other things have happened I've commenced my ministry but it's not time to be out there with 5,000 people and multiplying loaves and fishes it's not time for that yet so I think Mary had a little bit of a struggle with this because most mothers would have a little bit of a struggle with this and Jesus simply isn't ready for the public phase of his ministry at this point she has to let go of something she has to let go of the old relationship and it would not be the first time as I said earlier that Jesus would say something along those lines to her just like in the story in Luke chapter 2 when he said didn't you know and it makes the remark about Mary that when she heard that she went home and really thought about that and just kind of kept that in her heart didn't you know well the Spirit of God had told her much about Jesus and who he would be so I think there was lodging in her heart for those remarks but do you remember another occasion in Mark chapter 3 so now Jesus ministry is underway and now it really is the public phase and he's working miracles in fact he's working miracles and the crowds have become so great that on this particular occasion that's described for us in Mark chapter 3 uh, it, there's they're just people are everywhere there's no opportunity for Jesus and his disciples to so much as eat the Bible tells us and they come his mother and apparently some of the other family members and to, to put it in our terms I mean they just it says they thought he was beside himself which in our terms would be that he'd been out in the sun a little too long you know he, he just he's off the rails just a bit here we got to help him out and uh, you know you don't get get too far too fast trying to help God out it doesn't work but there they are they mean well they just don't quite get it and they send some people in and some people come in and they say hey your your mother and your brothers are out there they want to talk to you and Jesus looked around at the people who had gathered inside the house with him and he said my mother my brother my sister for whosoever shall do the will of God the same as my mother and brother and sister hmm that sounds stiff he wasn't rejecting them he was making a different point so there's a little struggle here I think on her part let's look at the next part is submission and she models just a quiet submission this is where this advice comes in she says to the servants now if you think about it that she maybe has a little responsibility for the food she's volunteered to help and asked to help whatever the case 
She doesn't really know quite what Jesus is going to do. He has not rebuffed her, but he has kind of made clear what the different circumstances are. So Mary just lets it go. You know, beloved, that's what you and I have to do. You're not going to understand God every day. He's too big. And as much as I'm impatient, see, I can preach all day long about that because I are. And many of you are. And as much as I would like to say a prayer and know right away how God's going to work or solve some issue or problem that I'm dealing with or have an answer ready-made, many times doesn't work out that way. So what does that shut us up to? It shuts us up. If we've already gotten past the fact that we've decided that we're going to be committed to God's will, it kind of shuts us up to exactly what Mary just whatever he says, do it. Trust and obey. You know, if you think about this, this involves trust. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, what if he told him to go outside and do calisthenics? Well, I'm just saying that's a little hypothetical in the extreme, but sometimes we think about that and it worries us a little bit. We you kind of have to have a little faith in that person. Yeah, we've all probably used that expression before, just trust me. And sometimes maybe it's in an in innocent context. Maybe there's a surprise going on. Um, I think I can tell this one okay, but um, when uh, Marissa's wedding came, well, Marissa knew a lot of things, but the one thing she didn't know was about those airplane that airplane going to come over. I didn't either, believe it or not, until shortly before the wedding. So we're sitting over there to the side, and uh, the guys are at the picnic tables and the gatherings down there, and the, that vehicle came by with all the girls, and Marissa said, you guys need to get over there. You need to get over there. So I get over there. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but it might have been something like that. We'll be long. Just trust us. Well, you kind of have to have, if you're going to do what that person says when you're a little bit nervous about why it doesn't seem like they're not doing what you think they should be doing, you have to trust that person. Before you obey, you have to trust. And that, you know, that's what the way it is with the Lord, beloved. Has he ever made a mistake in your life? Well, I've made a, pun a bunch, haven't you? But he never has. Easy preaching is hard living. But we have to settle in our hearts that God is in control. He doesn't always tell us everything when we want to know it. And we have to trust him so that we will obey him because if we trust him, then we can obey him. And that's a wonderful place to be in your life with God. I hope that I can encourage every person here this morning, trust him. I know it's hard. Listen, I'm not up here telling you this like I've got every problem solved. I know it's hard. But really, he does have your back. He really does have your best interest at heart. He really will bring you to a place of satisfaction, which is what we're getting to. Who was the first astronaut, I'll put it in terms that we know, who is the first, let me put it this way, who is the first man in outer space, an American or someone else? Huh? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I just wanted to wake you up a little bit. Yeah, it was actually a Russian. So you have to back up and say cosmonaut, I guess. 
Remember his name? Yuri Gagarin. Well, this was not known at the time. But later, after the Cold War was over, in fact, the article that this comes from is a popular science of, in the, July of 1999. Interesting thing that the Russian government didn't really trust all those cosmonauts. And so they had a system built into that spacecraft with armed explosives. And if the cosmonaut decided he was going to use that re-entry as a means of defecting, in other words, bringing the spacecraft down at a place where it wasn't going to be the Russians pick him up, somebody else might pick him up, well, all they had to do was transmit a radio signal and blow the thing up. Well, how'd you like to fly into outer space with a deal like that? You had to be able to enter a six-digit code in order to disarm those explosives. And when you dis entered that six-digit code and armed, or dis to disarm the explosives, then the reentry system that pro was programmed for to put the thing down in the right place would kick in. Rockets would fire, whatever the case would be. So Yuri Gagarin ostensibly went into space with only three of the six digits. The Russian government didn't trust him with the remaining three. But this is the story that came out after the Cold War was over. After the Russian government didn't trust him with anything but the first three, but the director of the head of the Russian space program trusted him, whispered the last three digits in his ear before he got on that flight. And beloved, you have to trust God. You have to. I have to. We all have to trust God. And what happens if you do that? Because I just want you to be encouraged. This is not easy. I hope I've sort of portrayed that enough this morning. This is not always easy. There is a struggle at times in our lives. But look at what ends up happening, and this is our last thought, satisfaction. Jesus did end up acting. He didn't just sit there and blow her off. He acted how he wanted to act, though. By the way, do you notice this was private? No attention was called to what Jesus did. No one knew. The governor of the feast didn't know. The master of ceremonies didn't know. Mary knew. The servants knew. Jesus knew. So he did do something. He did solve the problem. Let's have a look just quickly at this. First of all, if you're thinking about the satisfaction that comes from ultimately taking that advice, whatever he says to you, do it. Have a look at this. He worked his first miracle in that place. That's a notable thing. I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. Think about the servants for a moment. They knew. In fact, they were among the few who did know. They were the main group who knew. What a blessing that must have been to them. What an insight that must have given them into Jesus. That especially when Jesus, you know, they're thinking Jesus is going to say something like, well, whatever, I don't know what he would have come up with, but I don't think they thought it was going to be, see those water pots over there? Go and draw water out of the well and fill them up. Fill them up to the brim. 
I don't think these guys are thinking to themselves, hey, we have plenty of water. That's not the problem. We don't have wine. But they did what Jesus said. Boy, were they in for a blessing. Then you think about the couple that was relieved of an embarrassment. It never happened. It never happened because Jesus worked. Then you think about that first miracle. You know, our version uses the translation miracle for this, but probably there's nothing wrong with that because it was a miracle, but the more accurate definition of this particular term, because it's not the normal word for miracle, it's the word semean, which means sign. And if you know anything about John, you know that John is comprised of the fact that you get to the end and it says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And so you have seven selected of all the different ones that Jesus, and why were these seven selected by the Holy Spirit? This was a sign. It was invested with meaning beyond just the fact that people got wine that day who might not have had it otherwise. What kind of meaning was it invested with? Well, in how he did this. Because if you're looking over there and you think about this, you've got those five or six, those water pots are sitting over there. What do they represent? They represent the old wine. They represent the Old Testament. They represent the purifying of the Jews. Doesn't it say that? They're over there after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. Old Testament. Purifying of the Jews. Jesus in Luke chapter 5 used this figure of speech. He talked about the fact that you know you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Right? And so the new wine was a figure of what we think of today as the, the New Testament, the new dispensation, whatever you want to call it, the church age. But it signified the fact that the time was coming when all of those customs, those ritualistic things, those ceremonies, not the moral truths, not the things that they for that they foretold, not the things that they pictured, but all of that ceremony of the law, that was going to pass away. And the reason that it was going to pass away is because God saved the best gift for last. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. And the guests went to the governor of the feast and they said, what is going on here? The you, usually what people do at a wedding like this is, is they bring out the absolute best that they have. They put that out first, and then they take their chances that if things are going to get a little sparse at the end, well, they bring out you know, some stuff that's not the greatest. You saved the best for last. Oh, beloved, do you realize the privilege that we have to live in the day in which we... How would you like to be running around out there with Abraham and have no Bible... And not necessarily, so far as we could tell, have any contact with God for a number of years. Be left to try to figure that deal out with how is Sarah going to have a child? We're getting older and older and older. How'd you like to do that? It'd give you some respect for those guys, won't it? How'd you like to live in the Old Testament and not have a Bible? 
except for maybe what was given and where you were. How'd you like that? How'd you like to not have a Bible? I can't make it without this. I don't know about you. And in those times, God spoke in those ways that were incomplete, and it pleased him, but, you know, in these last days, he saved the best for last. And you and I have the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ in a way that Old Testament believers did not have that revelation. They did not have that knowledge. We have the benefit not only of having God's completed revelation in this book, but you and I, living in the year 2018, we have the blessing of standing on the shoulders of 20 centuries of people that have studied this book and preached this book and we have their example. We have the martyrs of the church. We have the fathers that gave us writings. We have preachers. Just think of the biographical series that we did. We have all of those people. And beloved, we, I think about this so many times, to whom much is given, much shall be required. And I think that a lot of times as Christians, we're mopey and whiny and complainy and Oh, we have it so hard. Well, I'm not minimizing. Many times it's very difficult. I, I've spent a lot of time talking about the struggle, but I'll tell you, God has put us in a position that if it was ever easy, which it never is, to trust him, it's easier now than it was then. Old wine, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And today, everyone in this audience and anybody who hears this message or this service any other time, we have the privilege of knowing precisely and without even having to wonder, you know, Jesus Christ is God's son. He died on the cross for sinners. That's the gospel that Paul preached. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And if you want to ha know how to have eternal life, you don't have to go far, especially in the United States of America. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nothing much to figure out, folks. There on that cross, he died. There he took my place. He did for me what I could never do because the righteousness of the law is unattainable. All those years the law was given to show people, you know what, God is up here. You can't reach God by your own works. You can't fulfill the law's demands. It was given as a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And it is one of the most soul-satisfying, soul-liberating truths that you will ever know is to know that for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Don't have to earn it. Don't have to trudge upstairs on my knees. Don't have to do penance. Don't have to worry about all that kind of thing because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. 
people's faith were strengthened. Jesus was glorified. It says this right here. His disciples believed on him. At the end of the story, it says his disciples believed on him, which is the whole purpose of John's gospel. It's the whole purpose of these sign miracles that people might see. Something that portrayed something that is true about the gospel. And what is that? It transforms people. It takes ordinary sinners, just like the water they put in those water pots. Ordinary sinners, big sinners, little sinners, rich sinners, poor sinners, sinners with educational degrees, sinners with no education. It takes any brand of sinners, it doesn't matter, and works in our heart in such a way that we become new creatures in Christ working an utter transformation in our hearts and minds, something that the law could never do. The absolute power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform a life. If you don't believe it, you come on Wednesday nights and watch us see about Paul, that one that we saw Wednesday night transformed. I could, I could listen to that. I could listen to that. Hebrew Christian pastor an hour. I could listen. He, he teared up at one point so much that they couldn't keep going in the, and the, the other person had to break the silence and just sort of help him get past that point. And he's talking about Paul. He's talking about how Paul was on that road that day. How Paul thought he was doing the will of God and was actually going to murder God's children. He told that story about that Israeli airstrike that was called in on this convoy and they didn't learn until later that they had bombed that convoy and it was their own. So how you feel when all of a sudden your eyes are opened and you realize that the sins you've committed, Paul, the sins he'd committed, he was murdering God's children and thought he was doing God a favor. And when his eyes were opened to that, no wonder he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He was utterly transformed. I don't know about you, but I want to be like that. I'm not Paul, and I don't have any illusions, but I'm inspired by that. I want my life to be transformed because that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. So moms... God has given you an incredible platform. There's none like it. I'll tell you what, you have a bigger, better platform than the one that I've got up here right now. You play a pivotal role in the lives of many. And the fact of the matter is, it's not just your kids. You can use that platform to be a blessing to people all through life. That's what happened here Jesus was grown. But Mary just kept telling those servants the same thing she'd been living out in all of her life. Whatever he says, do it. You may not understand what you're going through at the time. You may not understand why things are the way they are. You may struggle with those things, but just trust me and obey. And at some point when I'm ready, I'll work. Not your time, my time. Not your way, my way. I'll work. And when you have backed off and let loose of the thing and said, I can't do anything but make a mess, 
and you give it to God and he works it'll bring such satisfaction into your life to know that you didn't get in God's way and satisfaction that reaches the soul like none other can and that's what Mary knew she lived that out in her own life just do whatever he says you'll be fine